Hi guys, you're listening to Barbarossa, Apocalypse in the East. I'm your host, Harry. Today, we're looking at the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force. I was planning to do a single episode on both Soviet and German air power, but it ended up being a two-parter, which makes me think I might have given short shrift to talking about armor. If you want me to redo that, let me know. Anyway, today we'll look at a brief history of aviation prior to and during the First World War, then Germany's interwar experience with aircraft, followed by the early years of the Second World War. We'll conclude with a look at the Luftwaffe on the eve of Barbarossa. And we're going to also examine some of the major aircraft the Luftwaffe was using. Like most technologies, the military seized upon aviation as a tool of warfare as soon as it was viable. Prior to planes, hot air balloons were used for reconnaissance and observation missions. The French Aerostatic Corps, founded in 1794, is often cited as the world's first air force. As airships developed in the mid to late 1800s, these were incorporated as well. But the real beginning of military aviation required the creation of viable, heavier-than-air aircraft. That is to say, airplanes. Who exactly invented and flew the first airplane is a topic of heavy debate, and is a definitional as well as a historical argument? The Wright brothers are most commonly cited with their December 17, 1903 flight at Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, regarded by many as the first powered flight. Others suggest Brazilian aviator Alberto Santos Dumont as the first. Whoever it was, the military was immediately interested. The American Army was likely the first to incorporate airplanes into its military, with the creation of the Aeronautical Division of the U.S. Army Signal Corps on August 1, 1907. The years that followed contained a lengthy list of firsts. More and more uses were found for aircraft, and various military powers quickly created their own aerial units. Specifically, 1911 marks the first usage of an airplane in an offensive capacity during wartime, as an Italian pilot bombed Ottoman troops in Libya. Up until the First World War, though, aircraft lacked significant offensive potential. Despite technological advancements, airplanes were still finicky machines. Low-powered engines meant that excess weight had to be kept to a minimum, ruling out the possibility of carrying heavy weaponry like bombs and machine guns. Early war dogfights were limited to pilots shooting at each other with personal sidearms or even throwing things. On the whole, airplanes remained firmly rooted in a reconnaissance role. But World War I quickly changed this. In the Western Front, the war quickly bogged down into a bloody stalemate, and belligerents struggled for any kind of advantage that might break the tie. For aircraft, this meant a vastly expanded development and production schedule. Larger and better aircraft were developed that could carry and drop bombs, while fighter aircraft were modified with machine guns, which were timed to fire through gaps in the propeller. Aircraft had become offensive weapons. Interestingly, the arms race between German and Anglo-French militaries in the skies was so fast-paced that whoever controlled the skies was often determined by which side had the latest technology that month or even that week. For a while, the Germans were the only ones who had planes with really effective machine guns. During this period, Allied pilots were cut down in scores as the British government rushed to find a similar invention. Aerial warfare took on a reputation as a more honorable form of combat than the gory fighting on the ground. Pilots were seen as modern-day knights, and the very best aviators, the aces, were celebrities at home. The most famous of these, Germany's Manfred von Richthofen, better known as the Red Baron, racked up over 80 aerial victories. Another form of military aviation was the Zeppelin, the evolution of the Blim airship, whatever you want to call it. Essentially a large balloon filled with hydrogen for flotation, these airships had the advantage of carrying capacity and range compared to airplanes. During the First World War, 
Zeppelins were used by the Germans for reconnaissance and long-range bombing purposes. Despite the public fascination, air warfare was really only of secondary importance during the Great War. Vast advances had been made, true, but weaponry on aircraft still remained limited compared to ground weapons, and most planes had difficulty engaging ground targets. Limited range largely confined aircraft operations near the front lines, while slow speeds and low altitude ceilings, as well as delicate construction, rendered them vulnerable to newly created anti-aircraft weapons or even small arms fire. Even so, the pace of the aviation invasion convinced many that the aircraft would play a prominent role in future wars, particularly in a bombing role. And for this reason, the Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, worked to cripple the German potential for air power. According to the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was prohibited from manufacturing or using aircraft in a military capacity. For a few years, in fact, production of any kind of aircraft, including civilian, was prohibited. Remaining German air squadrons were reformed as police units, but even these were seen as too close to a military use and were disbanded or reshaped in the air traffic control routes. Weimar Germany, the post-Versailles government, was committed, at least on paper, to upholding the terms of the treaty. But the stipulated military disarmament was seen as too egregious to be upheld even by a cooperative government. As such, Germany began to rebuild its strength. But this had to be done covertly and on a small scale as to avoid detection by oversight. Rather than stockpiling equipment or amassing a great army, the Reichswehr, the German military, would have to content themselves with recreating and growing a core group of trained and expert officers with the hope that these men could lead the expansion of the military when restrictions were lifted. As far as air power was concerned, there was only so much that could be done domestically. Civil aviation training served as a stopgap measure as did gliding clubs. These groups taught participants the basics of flying and helped create a society enthusiastic about aviation. But this was only a partial measure and was no substitute for proper military aviation development and training. For this, Germany would have to look abroad. Some of the major German aircraft manufacturers created and tested designs in Switzerland or Sweden, among others. But the most significant operations would likely come from the USSR. The Soviet Union and Germany were both ostracized states at this time. Germany, with the Treaty of Versailles, and the Soviet Union, for its part, was a pariah state under multiple arms embargoes from most of the major powers. As such, it made sense that the two nations would work together. The Soviet Union had the equipment that Germany was forbidden, and Germany had the practical military knowledge that Soviet officers lacked. The first of these agreements, the Treaty of Rapallo, was signed on August 16, 1922. Officially, it normalized diplomatic and economic relations between the pair, but it also included secret clauses establishing military cooperation. For our purposes, the most relevant one of these today was the creation of a joint pilot training and aircraft development school in the Pitsk. Deep in the Russian interior, 440 kilometers southeast of Moscow, the Pitsk was comfortably out of the way from prying eyes. The school was established in 1925, and operations began the next year. Despite the far-flung location, Germany only sent a small number of pilots in for training, about 120, although 750 ground crew and administrative staff also received instruction. Early efforts focused on training veteran pilots, the so-called Old Eagle, many of whom were World War I veterans. But this proved unsuitable in the long term. Flying tends to be a young person's game, and many Old Eagles began to retire, suffered debilitating accidents, or die, or they simply became too busy to shuttle off to Lepetsk, which was lovingly nicknamed the world's asshole. On the developmental side, 
German and Soviet designers were able to experiment with all-metal plane construction and modern tactics. The work in the pits, spanning from 1926 to 1933, did not create an air force. It created an embryonic cadre of pilots and officers who would lead squadrons in high-level formations and were informed about the vital mechanics of aviation. On the doctrinal level, early interwar German efforts at developing a coherent doctrine were largely ruled by conflicting interests and material concerns above all else. Many officers, including Chief of Staff Walter Weaver, recognized the value of strategic bombing, that is, attacking the enemy's infrastructure, industry, and resources far behind enemy lines and able to hinder the enemy's ability to make war. But strategic bombers are extremely expensive, and Germany was unable to create these at the time. So although a so-called Ural bomber, capable of reaching deep into the USSR, was commissioned for production in May of 1934, this was to be a seven-year-long project, so Germany could not orient its air forces around something like this. In the meantime, Germany was only capable of creating and using tactical aircraft, which were cheaper to produce, but had less range, and for bombers, could carry fewer bombs. In addition, many German officers wanted to see the Air Force be a primarily tactical instrument, used to support the army and attack enemy forces near and on the battlefield. This school of thought would eventually win out and would shape the development and use of German air power, which we'll get into a bit more detail in a little bit. These low-level developments and theoretical discussions were finally able to be put to significant use when the Nazis took power in 1933. Hitler was an enthusiastic believer in the idea of air power, and Hermann Goering, his close friend, was even more invested in it. Hitler openly flouted the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, and aircraft production and development were ramped up significantly. Though, for the first two years of the Third Reich, this was an open secret, not officially declared. In February of 1935, the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, was officially acknowledged, with Goering as the supreme commander, a position he would hold until the end of World War II. Although the ability to develop doctrine openly, in addition to vastly increased production and budget, was very helpful to the Luftwaffe, the early years of Nazi Germany came with their own problems. Several of the major officers in the Luftwaffe, including Walter Weaver, died in an accident in 1936. An air accident, actually. Albert Kesselring replaced Walter Weaver as chief of staff, and Ernst Udet was appointed to head up the technical office of the Luftwaffe, who was basically in charge of development. These appointees, as well as others, helped shift the doctrine of the Luftwaffe much more towards tactical bombing and support rather than strategic usage. There are a few reasons for this. One practical, like we mentioned before, was production. Even with the breakneck rearmament program of the Third Reich, production capacity was still limited, and heavy bombers cost about twice as much as medium bombers. For political purposes, many of the higher-ups in the military were more concerned with how many planes they had than the makeup of the fleet. Finally, although Hitler did see some sort of eventual conflict with the USSR as inevitable, it was thought that the most likely opponents in the short to medium terms were to be Germany's direct neighbors and the Western powers. So that is to say countries like Poland, Czechoslovakia, France, and maybe, maybe the UK. All of which weren't really distant enough to justify strategic bombers. Due to all this, the Eurobomber program was quietly canceled in April of 1937. Rather than strategic bombing, these regional wars would require a strong focus on fighters and tactical bombers. The Luftwaffe would attempt to destroy enemy aircraft first on the ground and then in the air until Germany had air superiority. 
Then, the bulk of German efforts would shift to supporting ground troops through direct attacks on enemy forces and the destruction of infrastructure. The first true test of the Luftwaffe would come in Spain, where they would also see their first action against the Soviets. Fought between the right-wing nationalists and the left-wing republicans, the Nazis obviously aided the nationalists. The first major operation undertaken as part of the Spanish Civil War would be to transport the Nationalist Army of Africa, led by Francisco Franco, from Spanish Morocco to the mainland. Between late July and October, the Luftwaffe semi-covertly transported 14,000 elite troops and 270 tons of equipment to Spain. This was far from insignificant, and Hitler himself is reported to have remarked that Franco should have built a monument in honor of the Ju-52, the, the transport plane used in this operation. But the Luftwaffe was far more than just a glorified airline. Those German units that fought in Spain, known as the Condor Legion, would eventually grow to about 7,000 at any one time. In the air, it began with three bomber and three fighter squadrons, along with various supporting units and ground crews. Not long after the arrival of the Condor Legion, German pilots were met with Soviet opposition. At this point, the Soviet planes in Spain were equal and arguably somewhat superior to the older model German aircraft, and the crews tended to have more experience, granting the Soviets air superiority in these last months of 1936. Soon, reaching into early 1937, the situation had devolved so much for the Germans that it was decided that the Condor Legion would either need to be pulled out or they would have to be reinforced with modern aircraft. Eventually, it was decided to pursue the latter option. The Condor Legion was equipped with DO-17, HE-111, and Ju-86 bombers, as well as the Messerschmitt Bf-109 fighter. This significantly helped to turn the tide, as now more experienced air crews were flying superior machines to the Soviets. German aircraft began to dominate the skies, and were now able to conduct offensive missions almost unopposed. At this point, the Luftwaffe had not settled its doctrine, so in addition to providing basic air cover, it experimented with attacking ground targets and tactical and strategic bombing. Most infamously, the Condor Legion bombed the town of Guernica on April 26, 1937. Located in the Basque country of northern Spain, Guernica was an important position in the area, which was at the time the site of a nationalist offensive. As such, the Luftwaffe targeted as part of their support operations for Franco's forces. Beginning around 1.30 p.m. and lasting for three hours, waves of German bombers, completely unhindered by either enemy air forces or anti-aircraft weaponry, hammered the city of 10,000 people. This damage was such that Republican defenders were forced to abandon the city, allowing for the nationalists to capture it. But the bombing of Guernica is far more remembered for its civilian death than its military success. Initial reports from reporters and Republican sources spoke of 1,700 or more civilian deaths. Comparing this to later strategic bombing campaigns, most historians agree that this number is significantly exaggerated, and the best post-war scholarship estimates an upper death toll of 300. Of course, the European community, let alone the residents of Guernica, the exact number is almost irrelevant. Fleets of German aircraft had flown over a city, dropping bombs at the push of a button, dispensing death at practically no risk to itself. The process of war had never been so automated or so dehumanized. In no small part thanks to the actions of the Condor Legion, the Nationalist forces won the Spanish Civil War by April of 1939. For the Luftwaffe, this was the single most instructive opportunity they received prior to the Second World War. Tens of thousands of pilots and crew had gained priceless combat experience. 
Regarding doctrine, the Luftwaffe learned vital lessons about coordination between air and ground forces, as well as the value of tactical bombing and close air support. This pushed the Luftwaffe firmly in the direction of this kind of close-range tactical support rather than strategic bombing. Technologically, it revealed the need for more heavily armored fighters and ground support aircraft. But it also highlighted that many of these new German aircraft were superior machines and should be selected for further improvements, developments, and eventually mass production. All the while, the Luftwaffe was engaging in extensive pilot training back in Germany and was enjoying the fruits of rearmament. Yearly aircraft production had passed 5,000 by the late 1930s, 3,000 of which were combat aircraft, and the Luftwaffe was growing like never before. Aside from those who actually flew, the Luftwaffe also includes support crews as well as anti-aircraft units and Germany's airborne troops. In terms of organization, the highest level unit was the Luftflotte, air fleet. At the beginning of the war, four of these existed. Luftflotte would be assigned as needed, but typically a Luftflotte was expected to cover operations over a region. They were made up of Fliegerkorps, air corps. Within a Fliegerkorps were Geschwader, or wings, of about 100 aircraft. Geschwader were specialized units, and received names that described their composition. For instance, a Jagdgeschwader means a fighter wing. Beneath that were Gruppen, groups, who themselves consisted of Staffels, squadrons, of about 10 aircraft. For the time, this was a highly efficient organizational structure. One of the more standout features was the Luftflotte, which could consist of about 1,000 total aircraft. Having all this under one command meant a tremendous amount of air power could be concentrated at a single point quite rapidly, helping to achieve a decisive breakthrough. On the eve of the Second World War, the Luftwaffe had around 4,000 aircraft and 400,000 personnel. Against Poland, they committed about half of these in the initial invasion, outnumbering the less advanced Polish air forces by 3 to 1. The German plan for the air war was simple. They would attempt to launch surprise attacks against Polish aircraft while they were still on the ground, hoping to shatter them in one quick strike. If there was anything left, fighters would mop it up, while bombers and ground attack aircraft shifted to support the ground forces. In reality, it didn't quite go that way. Polish commanders had dispersed their planes and camouflaged them, so German attacks on Polish air bases were largely ineffective. Still, Polish forces couldn't compete in air-to-air -air combat, and they took heavy casualties attempting to intercept German bombers. The Luftwaffe quickly established dominance in the skies, leaving bombers and ground attack aircraft to run amok. Major Polish cities like Warsaw were bombed, and the Ju-87 Stuka dive bomber wreaked havoc on Polish ground forces. With the aid of overwhelming air power, Germany was able to capture most of western Poland in a matter of weeks. Further German attacks, in cooperation with the Soviet assault from the east, was able to crush resistance from the Polish military and occupy the whole country by early October. By the time Germany had turned west against the Low Countries, France, and Britain in May of 1940, they had learned valuable lessons and had gathered yet more strength. It was able to commit upwards of 5,000 total aircraft, most of which were equal or superior to that of their enemies, and now had even more experienced pilots. The Luftwaffe was absolutely dominant in the battles of Netherlands and Belgium wiping out most of these smaller air forces in 24 hours or two days. Against French and British flyers, it met stiff opposition, but it generally achieved favorable results. Perhaps the most notable role of the Luftwaffe was in cooperation between the aircraft and ground forces. In the Ardennes region, the Luftwaffe acted as flying artillery, allowing German forces to take several key crossings, and German commanders later remarked that air-ground coordination was never again so good. But France was also the site of the Luftwaffe's greatest failure to date. 
German Panzer divisions managed to encircle most of the Allies' best-equipped and best-trained forces, chasing them down as they tried to evacuate. At Dunkirk, the largest of these evacuations, German ground forces were instructed to stop their advance to consolidate their gains. Goering offered that the Luftwaffe could destroy the Allied troops at Dunkirk alone. Looking back, this was almost certainly unachievable. Air power alone lacked the precision and power to destroy significant ground force, especially when they had their own air support. The evacuation at Dunkirk went off successfully, marking a significant Luftwaffe failure, but overall, the Luftwaffe's performance in the Battle of France was pretty phenomenal. Following the Battle of France, the United Kingdom stood as the only power still resisting Nazi Germany. Aware that Germany's Kriegsmarine was no match for the British Royal Navy, and that an amphibious invasion was not possible, Hitler decided that the Luftwaffe would be employed to disable the RAF, the Royal Air Force, which would allow German aircraft to protect Operation Sea Lion, the planned invasion of the British Isles. Optimistically, he hoped that defeating the RAF alone would convince the British to make peace, without requiring a further invasion. Going into the Battle of Britain, Germany had an advantage in the total number of aircraft. The RAF had lost significant forces in the Battle of France, and what remained, although powerful, had to be distributed across its vast empire. Germany also had a larger contingent of trained pilots than Britain did. German pilots would be flying over hostile territories, though, so Luftwaffe pilots who bailed out would certainly either be captured or killed, while British pilots bailing out over friendly territory could often be recovered and returned to service. German aircraft had to be split between bombers and fighters, while the British could focus solely on bombers. British radar systems also provided a level of forewarning for incoming German strikes. German planes would have to fly a significant distance through to Britain, while British pilots simply had to take off. This meant that by the time German fighters reached their targets, they had used up much of their fuel, giving them little room for extended engagement and maneuver. Finally, even though Germany could field more aircraft, Britain actually had a significant lead in fighter production, allowing the UK to replace its mechanical losses much more easily than the Luftwaffe could. The first stage of the Battle of Britain was marked by German raids against British shipping in the Channel. Known as the Kanadkampf, it lasted from July 4th to August 11th. The results were inconclusive, but interpreted positively by Luftwaffe observers. RAF commanders were hesitant to commit large-scale strength at the stage, and older model British aircraft suffered severe losses when caught by German fighters. On the other hand, the Luftwaffe lost double the number of aircraft as the RAF in the Kanadkampf. In any event, the RAF decided that this was not where they wanted to have a decisive battle. To avoid further raids, they shifted some naval shipping to the rail system and moved remaining shipping to nighttime movement only. Goering interpreted all this as a sign that the RAF was on the verge of collapse and decided to press the assault to disguise over Britain itself. It was decided that the Luftwaffe would engage in bombing raids against British radar stations, airfields, and other infrastructure. This would force the RAF to send out fighters to intercept these raids, and it was hoped that German fighters could destroy these, shattering the last of what Goering thought was RAF power. The first day of this campaign, dubbed Adlertag, or Eagle Day, was eventually scheduled for August 13, 1940. Adlertag showed some early promise, disabling coastal airfields and temporarily knocking out radar stations, but the RAF were hardly beaten. They consistently met the raids, usually inflicting heavy casualties on attackers. Some of the greatest losses suffered by the Luftwaffe came from poorly escorted German bombers being mutilated by RAF fighters. On August 15th, a group of 115 bombers and 35 fighters were intercepted by British fighters, who claimed 75 planes destroyed and many more damaged beyond repair. Despite these attritional successes, though, the RAF was coming under increasing pressure. 
British losses were draining the number of pilots, taxing those who were still flying and making it difficult to respond to German raids. On the German side, though, the situation was also growing desperate. Many officers had truly believed the RAF was weak and demoralized, but British resistance was stiff and professional. With attacks on air bases and radar stations seeming to be insufficient, on August 19th, Gehring ordered bombers to target aircraft factories, hoping to deny Britain her industrial strength. According to the original plan, this was only supposed to happen once the RAF was neutralized, a process still very much in progress. Also, as factories tended to be in urban areas, this meant that the Luftwaffe was now engaged in bombing civilians, something they had largely avoided from doing in the West until now. Still, once it started, many officers enthusiastically adopted it, hoping that this bombing would cripple British morale. These bomber raids were not particularly successful in disabling the British aircraft industry, so on August 23rd, Gehring had efforts redoubled. They were now supposed to launch ceaseless assaults on both the aircraft industry and the RAF infrastructure. But just as before, this was insufficient. It's true that they were stressing the RAF, but they were also depleting their own count of planes and pilots. Britain had somewhat eased its pilot problems through an accelerated training schedule and the usage of pilots from occupied nations like Poland, Czechoslovakia, and France, as well as pilots from Britain's colonial dominions. Such was this even at the height of the Battle of Britain. The count of available RAF pilots was actually increasing, not decreasing. For Germany, months of high casualties were sapping German morale, draining training crew, and overstressing the Reich's industry. From about the beginning of September on, focus turned back to bombing major cities, which by now both Britain and Germany were doing. This also marks the beginning of the Blitz, a separate but partially overlapping period of German bomber raids on the UK that attempted to damage Britain's economic resources and sap morale. The Battle of Britain itself is regarded to have ended on October 13th, when Hitler suspended Operation Sea Line. But the Blitz continued until May of 1941. The early stages of the Blitz, running from September to November of 1940, largely focused on London. In November, focus shifted from London to other industrial centers like Birmingham, Manchester, and Coventry. Some of these attacks actually saw palpable success, but were called off too soon, as German commanders underestimated the ability of the British to rebuild and replace their factories. So, in essence, this proved insufficient to cripple or even severely damage the British war economy. The third and final stage of the Blitz was the targeting of British ports and shipping, undertaken from February to May of 1941. Erich Reder, commander of the Kriegsmarine, convinced Hitler that it would be most effective to coordinate submarine attacks on British shipping with Luftwaffe bombings. This proved pretty effective, but by this time, there was practically no chance of the Luftwaffe actually attaining air superiority, so the primary goal of the Battle of Britain in the first place, securing air superiority for the invasion of Britain, wasn't really possible. Continued bombing was actually stiffening British morale, and it was questionable if the damages they were inflicting on the RAF and Britain's economy were worth the severe losses that the Luftwaffe was suffering. Also, Britain had more immediate concerns. It had to consider campaigns in Yugoslavia, Greece, and most importantly, the Soviet Union. In light of all this, the last German bomber raid was conducted on May 11th, after which only a token force remained to target Britain. The Battle of Britain marked the first really major defeat for the Luftwaffe. German forces not only failed to achieve their goals, but suffered severe losses in doing so. The combat over Britain claimed nearly 2,000 aircraft, with hundreds more damaged beyond repair. 
More importantly, almost 2,600 aircrew were killed and an additional 900 captured. The Battle of Britain marked the first major defeat for the Luftwaffe. German forces not only failed to achieve their goals, but suffered severe losses in doing so. The combat over Britain itself claimed nearly 2,000 German aircraft, with hundreds more damaged beyond repair. More importantly, almost 2,600 aircrew were killed, and an additional 900 captured. In comparison, the RAF lost about 1,750 planes and 1,500 aircrew, the aircrew being far more valuable than the planes. The Blitz, a desperate and futile attempt to claim victory where victory was not to be found, cost hundreds upon hundreds more aircraft and crew for the Luftwaffe. German factories could generally replace these losses materially, but these planes would be sorely missed. Pilots would be a far more difficult thing to replace. The Battle of Britain also exposed the cracks in the Luftwaffe from a doctrinal and tactical perspective. Bombers had insufficient escorts, and German planes were no longer dominant to everything they encountered. In particular, the British Spitfire fighter gave Luftwaffe pilots quite a shock. The Stuka, of such use in France and Poland, was found to be easy prey for quicker and more nimble planes like fighters, and was decided it should only be used when air superiority had already been established. Arguably, the Battle of Britain also highlighted the Luftwaffe's lack of a heavy strategic bomber, and some historians have argued that the low bomb capacity of German bombers severely compromised the ability of the Luftwaffe to harm the British economy. Wrapping up, let's turn to what the Luftwaffe brought to muster in Operation Barbarossa, first going over the models used and then how they were organized for the invasion. The workhorse of the Luftwaffe was the BF-109. Designed in 1934 by Messerschmitt, it first saw service in the Spanish Civil War, where it proved itself an extremely capable machine. It was selected for further attention, and thus became the backbone of the Luftwaffe. The campaigns of 1939 and 1940 revealed the Messerschmitt BF-109 to be arguably the best mass-produced fighter at the time. It possessed a combination of speed and agility that few planes could match. Armed with both machine guns and high-caliber cannons, it boasted more firepower than most fighters of the day. One could say that the BF-110 was a sort of big brother to the 109. Developed shortly after the 109, also by Messerschmitt, the 110 was created as a heavy fighter, also called a Zerstroyer, or destroyer, by the Germans. Compared to regular fighters, heavy fighters are larger, obviously, with longer range, but at the cost of speed and maneuverability. Primarily, they're used to protect bombers, though they can also function in the regular fighter role. The 110 was armed with a cannon in addition to a brace of machine guns. The Ju-87, more well known as the Stuka, was the Luftwaffe's primary dive bomber and ground attack aircraft. Like many of the Luftwaffe's standard aircraft, it was developed in the mid-1930s. By aircraft standards, it was heavily armored. This granted it protection from some enemy fire, but also made it painfully slow and severely reduced mobility. However, the Stuka was notable for being able to execute almost vertical dives, granting it more utility than most other dive bombers. The Stuka was also a powerful psychological weapon. Its ability to execute extremely precise bombing strikes created a constant sense of dread, and this was enhanced by the special sirens that created a screaming noise when the plane dived. The Stuka was armed with standard machine guns and could also carry bombs. The Ju-88 was to German bombers what the Bf-109 was to German fighters. Created in that same period of 30s innovation, Junkers created a versatile and agile bomber. Much of its versatility came from the fact that it could be used in a variety of roles when needed, including as a dive bomber, night fighter, and heavy fighter. 
It was originally envisioned as a fast bomber, capable of outrunning fighters. And against older fighters like the British Gladiator or the Soviet I-15, this was possible. The Ju-88 also had respectable maneuverability, range, and bombing capacity. It was equipped with a series of machine guns around the airframe, as well as being able to hold bombs. The HE-111 wasn't too different from the Ju-88. It was also developed as a medium tactical bomber in, if you can believe it, 1934 or so. Interestingly, during the early period of its development and testing, it was sometimes disguised as a civilian airliner. I'm not a super technical guy, so to me, the HE-111 does seem very similar to the Ju-88, with near-identical speed, similar range, bombing capabilities, weaponry, etc. The most common and most widely used German aircraft were distinguished by a few key factors. They tended to be all-around good vehicles from a technical perspective, and they were also comfortable to fly, allowing crews to stay fresh for longer and perform better. That these aircraft, most developed in the mid-1930s, were still highly capable vehicles points to a highly adaptable design. In general, German aircraft were sturdy and well-engineered, but this came at a cost. That cost being, well, cost. And German aircraft tended to be more difficult and expensive to mass-produce than many of the Allied equivalents. Regardless, on paper, German planes were highly effective. So, let's have a look at how they would be organized for Barbarossa, starting with actions in the north and descending. Luftflotte 5, stationed in occupied Norway, would target Soviet shipping and operations in the Arctic north with about 100 machines. Luftflotte 1 would assist Army Group North in its operations in the Baltic and Leningrad area. For this, it had 820 aircraft, which about 80% were serviceable on June 22nd. Though even this suggested figure is a bit misleading to the combat capacity of the Luftflotte. Only about 175 fighters were in serviceable condition, alongside 210 bombers, the remainder being seaplanes, reconnaissance, stays on aircraft, or transport airplanes. For its part, Luftflotte II was attached to Army Group Center. As Army Group Center was the priority in Operation Barbarossa, Luftflotte II was given favor over the other fleets. It received 1,200 serviceable aircraft for its use in Belarus and west-central Russia. Of this, about 450 were fighters and 400 were bombers. Significant reconnaissance and transport contingents were also present. Finally, Luftwaffe 4 was to support Army Group South in Ukraine and, optimistically, the Caucasus. For this, it had around 630 serviceable aircraft. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to find the specific data for Luftwaffe 4 as it concerned uh, operational aircraft, serviceable aircraft, and types of aircraft. An interesting question, which I have yet to find a good answer for in my research, is why Luftwaffe 4 was significantly smaller than Luftwaffe 1. Army Group Central had top priority, but it's generally acknowledged that Army Group South had secondary priority, with Army Group North being the least important of the three. And yet, Luftwaffe 1 was about a third larger than Luftwaffe 4. In any case, the Luftwaffe plans for Barbarossa were simple and very similar to the campaigns in France and Poland, with a special emphasis on destroying the Soviet Air Force on the ground. For this, Luftwaffe bombers would conduct large-scale attacks on Soviet airfields, hoping to destroy as many aircraft as possible. With this done, an air superiority established, focus would turn to supporting ground forces. Before Barbarossa even started, however, the writing was on the wall, so to speak. For, for the task at hand, the Luftwaffe had a serious deficit of aircraft. They were being expected to cover an invasion across a 2,900-kilometer border at the depth of hundreds of kilometers, all with fewer aircraft than they had to use against France. 
As such, there was no way that the Luftwaffe would be able to provide consistent support. According to Hans Jeschenek, chief of the general staff of the Luftwaffe, German air power could not be guaranteed and was only reliable in and around significant points, such as major roads or battlefields. As I've pointed out, Germany lacked a strategic bomber. The Eurobomber project was canceled in 1937, leaving the Luftwaffe with more limited range. Almost as an afterthought, Luftwaffe plans for Operation Barbarossa did include something to bomb Soviet factories in the Ural Mountain range. But these plans necessitated a completely successful Operation Barbarossa with an infantry advance up to the Caucasus that granted the Luftwaffe airfield in range of the Ural Mountains. Which, in essence, means that German strategic bombing would not and could not affect the course of Barbarossa would only be possible after victory was achieved, making it kind of redundant. All in all, on June 22, 1941, the Luftwaffe was likely still the most powerful air force in the world. Its combination of high-quality planes, crews, numbers, and battle-won experience was second to none at this point. The roots of the Luftwaffe are firmly planted in the interwar period, making it truly an organization decades in the making by the opening of Barbarossa. It had cut its teeth in the Spanish Civil War, in Poland and France, where it had proven itself a flexible and powerful force but it had met its match in the RAF, coming away bloody and humiliated. Now, it was turning its strength against the USSR, hoping to strike a decisive blow while the Third Reich was still dominant in Europe. To win would require a combination of tactical acumen, industrial power, and military organization, each of which on a level hereto unknown. The Luftwaffe, Goering's brainchild, painstakingly built up by the Reich, was poking the bear. And the bear wouldn't go down easy. This brings us to the end of our episode today. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be posting a similar entry on the Red Air Force as soon as I can, hopefully tomorrow. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, feel free to email them to me at apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. That's apocalypseintheeast at gmail.com. Otherwise, my name's Harry. I'll see you soon.